welcome to another fantabulous episode of Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, and my co-host is Chris Kay. If you've been listening the last few weeks, then you'll know we've been focusing on bands from the Seattle area. Well, this week we're diving in feet first as we begin our two-part series, The Grunge Scene. Dating back to 1984, the first noted use of the name, grunge took America by storm in the early 90s. It was as much a movement as a musical style that broke all the rules and defied the norms set by the music industry bigwigs. Grunge didn't just change the sound of music at the time, it became a cultural phenomenon that flipped the music and fashion industries on their heads. But by the end of the 1990s, grunge had fizzled into the mainstream, but in its wake left an indelible mark that is still felt to this day. So Chris, here we are. We're finally getting around to doing this grunge scene um, episode or episodes and concentrating on, on all these bands that came out of the Seattle area in the mid-80s into the 90s. And it's been a while. We've talked about a few bands over over the last three years. And it's but we've never really focused on the whole scene itself. And now that's what we're gonna do. And I think we're we're gonna pull this off pretty well. What do you think? So I guess not everybody would consider grunge to be metal. Um but it is hard rock and that's something we do focus on. Um and it's it's a pretty important part of history in the metal scene. I mean, some of these bands, I would say, uh, are very metal. And um, it's just, it's not the same as, like, what came before. So, you know, a lot of the the, uh, the L.A. scene guys don't really care for the grunge scene, etc. But that doesn't matter, because it's, uh, you know, it's still part of the metal lexicon, part of the history. So, yeah, well, you know. The LA, I, I can understand why the LA scene's a little upset about them, <laughs> but you it's know, their own fault. <laughs> but like I've I've said this since the beginning, since we've started the show, I've said this to friends of mine. You know, if you and I have had this conversation before, you know, everyone's just saying grunge killed glam rock, or grunge killed this person's career or that band's career, and you know what? It all starts from ground zero, you know, whoever that band is that's, that's claiming that they got killed, you know, it, it's their fault. Yeah. Okay. And it, well, let me, let me, let me change that. It, it is their fault, I would say 90%. Part of it too is that their record companies, you know, either dropped them or didn't think that they were viable anymore. And so they had a, a, a tough time getting recording contracts. Or some of the bands just didn't really have <laughs> as as solid of, of songs. No. Or ability to continue to change because things change in our culture. And, I mean, grunge came out of a dislike of the decadence of the glam scene. So things that were huge and popular and 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 everybody kind of supported at one time, well, that changes when you see this over and over again. And people desire different things. And it was a rejection of that lifestyle. And even the, the music style was a rejection of the stuff that came before it, the shredders and, and all that, that, you know, style of music. So this was 
a naturally developing phenomenon that was kind of caged in this one area. So, yeah, you know, and, and these bands that, that, that cry, you know, basically cry in their soup. It's just bullshit to me because you know what, if you're going to, if you write a good song, it's going to get heard. It's going to get played. Okay. I'm sorry. You know, guns and roses, Metallica, uh, some of the other thrash bands, I would say even Megadeth for, for a certain point until they decided to shoot themselves in the foot, they defied logic at the time and became success. They were just as successful or even more successful in the nineties, you know, uh, Guns N' Roses shot themselves in the foot by the, by the mid to late nineties. But, at, but you know, the, the use your illusion albums were hugely successful. And they were not, uh, you know, they were not afraid to basically write the songs that they wrote. Now, Axl Rose was also not afraid to dress like he was grunge, but at the same time, you know, the rest of the band didn't. You know, Metallica, for whatever it's worth, they they released the Black Album, huge, but it took them five years to to write another album, or yeah, five five years, and. They changed dramatically, but they didn't change to grunge. They didn't. They changed more to alt rock, <laughs> you know, alt metal. Rock. You know, <laughs> it's just one song. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know, and even like what I said, Megadeth. You know, Megadeth went along using Metallica's uh, uh, pattern. They got softer, and then they decided that they wanted. Oh, let me see if I could, you know, capitalize on this scene doing whatever it's doing. But by that time, you know, the mid nineties grunge was fading away and, and, you know, people were trying to jump on the bandwagon and the bandwagon was, was just falling apart, you know, and I, and I say those bands, but you know, then, then came new metal and the American, uh, the, the new wave of American metal that, you know, that came up and metal core started coming at the, you know, at the early two thousands. And it's just, Things changed dramatically for everybody, but I mean, grunge is a, is a point in time, and we're gonna have to dis- discuss that really. I mean, over the two episodes, um, but it it was like like we said at the top of the show is more is as much of a movement as it was a musical style, and a lot of these bands were able to adapt and change and, and grow. And it wasn't even like adapt to survive. It was more like they just matured and they were able to kind of st- stay in the scene. And some of them would kind of fade out and for various reasons. And I guess we'll, we'll discuss that over, over the next couple episodes. But um, I guess why don't we get into the influences? Let's do that. Go for it. All right, so some of the major bands um, that were influences of grunge as cited by those uh, bands would be uh, the Sonics, which was back in 1965. If you listen to their album Hero the Sonics, you can really hear a lot of that kind of attitude, the the, um, kind of like uh, moody sound to it, and that's... It's very interesting to hear something way back in 1965 that would be an influence, but it it certainly is. Um, Many actually cite Black Sabbath with their 
actually it's not just their first album it's more of like their first classic albums but uh, i mean up to, to to war pigs being a direct influence to to uh dave grohl um but black sabbath kind of had that moody sound the doomy sound that would kind of follow some of those early grunge albums um the stooges with their fun house record in 1970 um neil young who's known as the godfather of grunge, uh, released Russ Never Sleeps in 1979, uh, which so many bands, especially Eddie Vedder, uh, said that it was a reference, that you know they, they kind of aspired to that sound. And then they would actually later record, uh, they being Pearl Jam, would record Mirrorball with Neil Young. So that kind of came f- around full circle. And then... Uh, wipers with youth of america now that was a band i never heard of before um but that was interesting to hear because in 1981 kind of at the uh, before the the grunge movement really took place that's an album that some bands cited as like they heard it and adopted some of those those uh characteristics so um, grunge developed in part due to the scene really being isolated to that Seattle area. So while everything was kind of going on in the New York and L.A. scenes and there was a lot of focus put into the, the, the bands that were developing out of there, um, the, the music industry kind of neglected the Seattle area and it formed organically, which I think is a really cool thing to happen, whereas, you know, maybe... At the beginning of the LA scene, that was the same thing that was happening. It's organic. It, it's um, you know these bands that are everybody knows each other. They're they're playing together. They're playing at sh- at small shows, and then some corporate executive comes out and goes, "Oh wow, you know here's something we can take advantage of." And so um, that was really what happened with grunge. So um, one thing that mud honey's mark arm said he's he's the the singer of that band um said this corner of the map was being really inbred and ripping off each other's ideas and as we go over the 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 bands and the members of those bands you'll really understand exactly what we mean by that so many of the early bands that were signed under sub pop which was the kind of like originators of grunge in fact the the um co-founder of sub pop was what the person that coined the term grunge um so many of the early bands that were signed under them were spreading ideas and style that quickly developed into the sensation that was the, the the grunge movement and author Catherine strong noted that the strongest influences of metal on grunge was thrash and that was that the equality of with the audience so that meant that anyone could start a band or anyone could could have that look like you didn't have to dress up and wear all the the you know the the glammy stuff you didn't have to style your hair for three four hours you could just pick up and go and you looked like a member of a band you know the same thing with thrash where these guys rejected that kind of like overdone look and just got up on stage and played with their favorite band shirt and you know long hair and it didn't matter um the u.s hardcore scene can also be noted as an influence as it carried much of the same attitude bands like the black flag with their 1984 release my war had a really large impact on the grunge scene um and one quote that i thought was really interesting was uh, and i referenced dave girl earlier uh was 
he was quoted saying from Kurt, Chris, and I liking Knack, Bay City Rollers, Beatles, and ABBA. It was just as much as we like Flipper and Black Flag. You, you listen to the Pixies record and it's all over there. Or even Black Sabbath's War Pigs. It's there. The power of the dynamic. We just sort of abused it with pop songs and got sick with it. So he's he's noting that all these bands, very eclectic, they liked all of them and used all of these guys as influences to, to make the sound of grunge in the early years. It, it's it's amazing that 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 a particular scene like this can can develop into so many different splinters because like you know we always talk about you know like uh, metal having so many different subgenres right mm-hmm. whereas grunge it, it it it's not necessarily a subgenre because you'd never heard of of well that, that let me let me roll that back you did hear of some some subgenres but that was all just trying to force it into a classification whereas for the most part when all these bands started when when green river started and if it, it turned into you know mud honey and uh malfunction and then malfunction turned into mother love bone and all these bands started you know the incestuousness of all these guys going back and forth and you know like like mark said the, the inbreeding it's they 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 all play different styles of music, but yet we're all classified as grunge, you know? And it's just because their sound was shitty, essentially, is the reason why grunge exists in, 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 a, in a nutshell. It was, so it's just funny because I'm, I, there's no way I'm in the world I would ever compare Mudhoney to Soundgarden, and I would never compare Soundgarden to Screaming Trees or to Screaming Trees to Alice in Chains. It just doesn't. It, none of them jive together. But I mean, they're all I, grunge bands. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there's a lot of similarities, but there's different aspects to it. Like whereas one is more psychedelic, the other's more metal. The others, but they all still have that same tone. They all still have that same attitude. They, you know, everything is a little bit tuned down. Everything's a little bit, you know, pessimistic. And and so there is that similarity that binds them all together. But I I also get what you're saying. They're not exactly the same. Like you can't throw on um, Exodus and Testament and tell me they're not the same kind of music. Right. It, it, there's the, they, you know the grunge bands all share the same DNA, right? That's mm-hmm. that's that's you know proven fact. It's just that they're just different bands. You yeah. Know? And they're different, even within their that band. It just there's different styles of of music that that you know Pearl Jam does not sound anything like Soundgarden. Okay, but somehow you know those players mixed to make a to make a band that doesn't sound like either one of them. You know, it's just a, you know, I mean, I would say Temple of the Dog sounds closer to Pearl Jam than it does Soundgarden. You know, but. There's a link that Chris Cornell's voice can can you know, is is just one of the most recognizable voices out there. You know when when um, when Bruce Pavitt, the the co-founder of Sub Pop, you know, described Green Day as as being grunge. A Green uh, Day, Green, uh, Green River. <laughs> when Bruce Bruce Pavitt described Green River's album uh, or EP Dry as a Bone as being uh, grunge, you know he was. It was funny because he's trying to describe the the 
the the vocals and the sound of the guitars and the this this groove that the, that the the songs had as grunge mm-hmm. right and and by by happenstance someone picked up on the fact that is he said grunge and then when they picked up on that he ran with it and and just started describing all the bands that were in sub pop as grunge you know and that's that's the crazy part about it how it just just basically exploded from that point and even then still nobody knew about it cuz like you said you know or like mark said it was that one little corner of the map that nobody was paying attention to you know and that's that's where you know it, it's it's just so different no well, i mean gonna- as we've said before um genres of music are just how we can market somebody you know if yeah. if you like this band then you'll like this band but it doesn't mean they're the same because if you like rock music then you could potentially like the eagles you know but that doesn't mean you're going to like kiss so <laughs> i like the eagles they're okay okay but, but i'm just saying you can you can define both of them as rock music at times you know? oh, yeah, yeah, no, I understand. And so, yeah, rock is very wide, wide variant exactly. stuff. So, but if we if we define it a bit more, then it's easier to find things that you like. And I would say that for the most part, if you like Green River, you're probably going to like, you know, Soundgarden. It doesn't necessarily mean that you will, but they have a lot of similarities, and you might enjoy the same things. So, okay, I, I get that. So. Let's get on with talking about these bands here. So um, let's start it off with with before there was grunge, there was this guy that was living out in Montana named Jeff Ament, and he put this band together named Deranged Diction, uh, 1982-1983. Um, many people out there are going to know who I'm talking about when I mention Jeff Ament, but this is where he started. This was his first band, Deranged Diction in Montana, who he joined forces with a guitar player named Bruce Fairweather. Um, and the two of them moved to Seattle because they weren't getting anything going over there in Montana. And I can understand why. There's just nothing out there. Um, and they moved to Seattle and basically disband as soon as they get to Seattle or, you know, the next year. And um, Jeff joins forces with Mark Arm. And turns into Green River. And you're going to talk a little bit more about Green River now. Okay. So Green River was a band that lasted from 1984 to 1988. And then they again got together in 2008, 2009. And a couple one-off, two-off reunions. Um, But for the most part, their history, we're going to talk about 1984 to 1988. Uh, So lead vocalist Mark Arm. uh, Lead guitar Steve Turner. uh, Lead guitar as well bruce fairweather so rhythm guitar stone gossard uh bass guitarist jeff ament and drummer alex vincent who would appear in basically all of their reunions except for uh their 1993 reunion when he was replaced by chuck treese um so green river 
we're we're talking about first, even though they're not the first chronological band here, uh, because like you said earlier, their Dry as a Bone EP in 1987 was the first album described as grunge by Sub Pop owner or Sub Pop co-founder Bruce Pavitt. Um, so really, this band is it started as a punk band, uh, but it has some of the DNA of what grunge would be. Um, Dry as a Bone uh, came out in 1987, like we mentioned, but they had the Come On Down EP in 1985 and Rehab Doll in 1988, which was uh, their only album. Um, the album was released after the band essentially broke up due to stylistic differences with Mark Arm taking one side and Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament taking the other. They were the kind of the creative forces of the band, and they really didn't see eye to eye on where they wanted the future to go. And so they they left and started their own projects, which we'll talk about later. Um, so this album, I would say, definitely takes more of a turn of what would be recognized as the early grunge sound, but we're still kind of in the early phases, even though it's 1988 and we're, you know, basically couple years into the sound of grunge starting um it's still i wouldn't say becomes grunge what we know it as today until the early 90s so we've still got a little range or little time to go well you know the the funny thing about about green river here is that you know they they record the come on down ep in 85 and um, it's not on Sub Pop. It's on a it's on a different label, and it comes out, and you know it it, it has an influence. You know, and people are, are hearing it, and they're 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 liking what they hear out in that you know in the Seattle area. And there was you know bands look back at that album just as much as Dry at the Bone. You know, as you know, they look at Come On Down in that album EP um, that. That's where basically the first, the first notes and the first tunings and the first sound of grunge, you know, appeared, and you know it, it's it's funny because they're just doing what they what they wanted to do, they they were doing what they thought is what they want, you know, what what came natural to them, yeah, you know, and and as you mentioned, you know, Stone and Jeff had more metal kind, had more metal kind of leanings. Uh, Mark Arm was a little bit different. Um, the big the big thing was Steve Turner left before, you know, um, before the breakup and was replaced by Bruce Fairweather. So he was, you know, Bruce was Jeff's friend. They brought him in, and Steve was the first one to, to sit there and say, "I'm not jiving with these with these other two guys because they're more metal." You know, yeah. and it was it was one of those weird things that it's like you're still playing the same kind of music, but you're more metal and you're not. Um, it's a different sensibility, different style of playing, and it, you know, it to some degree it does work. But if you're not happy with it, if you're you're you know, kind of fighting each other with your sensibilities, then it's not it's not going to yeah, last. When, when, right, exactly. And when I was listening to some of that music today, I could I could definitely. Excuse me. I can definitely understand um, where where Steve was talking, you know, or what Steve was talking about in terms in terms of metal. But again, it, it, if you listen to it straight up, the first thing you think of is this is this is early '80s punk. 
mm-hmm. you know, the, the kind of stuff, the, the kind of punk that was coming out of LA. It wasn't the hardcore stuff like Black Flag or anything like that, but it was kind of the, the suicidal tendencies type of punk that first appeared, you know, uh, on the scene in like 81, 80, 81, around there. Um, it had a lot of that style, but at the same time, it wasn't super fast like suicidal could get. It was a little bit more like downplayed in in the attitude and right and not as aggressive i would say like black flag black flag is kind of always in your face and some of right. those some of those punk bands are whereas you could tell there was more of a i don't want to say like somber attitude but to some degree yeah like there there is a um a different uh, approach to this this punk music their mood was like the weather <laughs> fair enough (laughs) gloomy (laughs) anyhow um yeah so that's that's pretty much green river at the at the time um and you know like like we said like or like you said you know they would split up in in um was it 88 right they split up Mm -hmm. or he said yeah somewhere around there and 1988 right stone and jeff went one way and mark went the other way um and leading into that Somewhere else in the city or somewhere else in the in the area was another band named Malfunction. And that one consisted of lead vocalist and bass guitarist Andrew Wood, guitar player Kevin Wood, which is Andrew's brother, and drummer Regan Hagar. So this band, they, they, they for the most part, were a three-piece. I think at one point they, they tried a, a, another guitar player and it didn't work out for them, so they stayed a three-piece. Um... They began in 1980. They technically were together until 1988. Um, and then um, Kevin decided to start the band over again in 2006, and they have been together ever since. Obviously, it's not the same band because, as I'm going to tell you right now, they released one album to the general public. Uh, you have here so it, Dave recent. It was Hunt. released oh. in 1995, so... There's no, because uh, you said you have Dave Reese on bass and Dave Hunt on drums in 1980. Yeah, those were the only two other guys. You said a guitar player, okay. which wasn't okay. All right, so they released their first album. Well, let's, let's go back in 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 an attempt to basically put an album out. They started recording some demos and were and and had some songs put together, um, but they they never were able to get their album released um so but they 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 played out live you know they they did shows and stuff like that they were known for having outlandish outlandish performances and and, you know andrew would would you know would walk out into the crowd he'd you know he'd stop to eat cereal and then throw out the 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 milk and the remnants uh, into the into the crowd um and then in 1985, the band actually put themselves on hold while Andrew checked into rehab to try and get himself fixed uh, from his heroin addiction. Um, so technically, they never really disbanded, if you want to look at it that way. But um, they didn't have much interest because there was just they were too chaotic. There was too much stuff going on, especially surrounding Andrew. And so the you know they were just basically doing jam sessions with themselves, uh, and uh, they ended up getting you know uh, together with stone and jeff from from green river and and you know having some jam sessions then too and so they the the all the recordings that they did in the 80s were then released in 1995 so 
uh, seven years after the, the basically the dissolution of the band, um, they it was called Return to Olympus, and it was put put out by Stone Gossard uh, on his Loose Groove Loose Groove record label that he had. But that uh, a, a lot of that has to do with what comes a little bit later um, when we start talking about uh, Mother Love Bone. But we're not going to talk about them just yet. So one thing I want to note is. Um you, you mentioned the members of the band, but they, they actually went out as personas. They were really big fans of Kiss. And so um, Andrew Wood would go as Landrew, the love child. And uh, Kevin Wood was Kevin Stein, uh, but also he had some other names. But that was the predominant one that most people seem to know. And then uh, Reagan Hagar was Thundar. So they, they went in out with makeup. They had their hair done, teased, all that stuff, kind of like... Uh, their own personal tribute to Kiss, and uh, I think sometimes they they didn't do that. Um, but for the most part, they it was very uh, lavish, kind of um, over overblown, exciting, bombastic show. So they had their fan base, but it didn't seem like any record companies were interested. No, it's funny because we sit there and we talk about oh these bombastic shows. These are all club shows. You know, there's small little places. Yeah, you but know, would they, you say, I mean, Wasp, what, right, throwing meat oh, out yeah, in the yeah. crowd. It's at a club, but at the same oh, no, time, of course. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, over, it's over the top inside this club. Yeah, it's just funny. No, I'm not, I'm not taking anything away because uh, from what you're saying is being bombastic. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, they were. It's, it's just funny that when you think about, when, when you, the first thing you hear about bombastic, you think about Kiss and playing, you know, in these giant, you know, Their bombs going off and in, all the, that stuff, in the yeah. right, and and you're you you think about they were in a club, <laughs> you know, and probably a very small club at that, you know. So that's that's the funny thing about these these bands, which they were over the top just to themselves and their their small little core fans. And, and it's funny because you know they probably played like two three clubs around town, but it was the same audiences that went to to go see all these. <laughs> different shows at different clubs you know i've listened to the album it's not bad uh, it's really not now it's not bad album i mean it, it is definitely glam leaning um for sure uh, and that was that was andrew and and that was andrew's influence on on that he was definitely a showman you know he had a little bit of a look um it's kind of weird to put it this way because i think you know he was around before um mark torian from the bullet boys but he has a look like Mark and David Lee Roth combined. Um, and that's just the way the, the look was. So maybe Mark stole his look from Andrew Wood. But when you think about Andrew Wood, the picture I, 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 I get in my head is someone similar looking to, to Mark Torian from the Bullet Boys. Okay. All right. So up next, we got the Melvins. Right, so Melvins or the Melvins, as some people know, um, started in 1983. So, um, still before Green River, but the the reason we have them here is really because Green River was that first band that that the the term grunge was coined about. Um, but Melvins, I would say, is not necessarily a grunge band per se. Um, I would say they're more of sludge metal. If you listen to those early albums, especially, they're they're more metal than a lot of the guys here. Um, 
but they're still a pretty heavy influence on the on the scene. Uh, some of the members would cross over, as we've mentioned before. Uh, but let's go over that. So we've got lead vocalist and guitarist Buzz Osborne, the only um, member that has been throughout their entire career. Um, man, there's about 40 bassists here. So um, we're going to talk about the the Matt Lucan, who is probably one of the most prominent ones. Uh, but there's Lori Black, Joe Preston, uh, Mark Dutram, Kevin Ripmanis, uh, Trevor Dunn, Jared Warren, Jeff Pincus, and even uh, Dale Crover, who was one of their, their most consistent uh, drummers. Played bass for a while from 2008 to th- 2015. Um Man, Stephen Shane McDonald is their current bassist, Uh, but Dale Crover, you'll hear that name again later, uh, is a drummer, or uh, is their main drummer. Uh, Mike Dillard, also on drums, so they have multiple drummers in the band, Uh, and then Cody Willis was there for a while. Um, During the time that we're going to talk about, which is up to 1991, they released Melvin's EP, a.k.a. Six Songs, which I think most people would know it as Six Songs uh, from 1986, Gluey Porch Treatments in 1987, Ozma in 1989, Bullhead in 1991, and the Eggnog EP in 1981. Or sorry, 1991. Did I say 1981? You did. So, 1991. (laughs) Um, They didn't go back in time before they were created and released the album. Um, but Melvin's to me, like I said, is more of a sludge metal band. Um, definitely has that DNA, the same kind of attitude and that, um, kind of anti-establishment vibe going on. So I understand why they fit into the scene and they, you know, these guys all cross paths. So that was also part of it. So it's not necessarily the musical aspect always that slotted these guys into just being known as grunge. It was more of like, it was part of that scene. Yeah. For the most part, all these bands are basically, you know, from the same general vicinity. Although the Melvins themselves were out from the Aberdeen area, um, so, but they were still, you know, th- th- if you're talking about touring or if you're talking about the circuit and stuff like that, you know, sort of like, you know, LA to Sacramento, uh, cause, or, or, you know, Sacramento to, to San Francisco, that kind of thing. There's, there's circuits that you play and you, you know, even some of the LA bands would go up to San Francisco, uh, and, and play. They weren't too happy about it and they, they weren't too thrilled, but when the audiences started booing them because they weren't, they were playing, you know glam metal as opposed to what was became the bay area thrashing but you know over down in 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 seattle that's what they're there's a circuit you know that everyone plays and so the melvins were part of it but the melvins or or melvins however you want to say their name they were definitely different um you know listening to them today i was it's it's like it's like a doomier black sabbath Mm mm-hmm you know, and then the vocally, vocally, I think that's where they blend in the most in terms of the Seattle sound and, and grunge. Vocally, they sounded very similar to some of the other bands. Um, but I, I just, it's one of those things. I just, I couldn't get into it. Like, I have two of their albums. I have the two albums that came out on on um, after '91, uh, their uh, their debut on a major label, and I just, I listened to it. And I'm like, yeah, man, this is just not not my thing. You know, 
other stuff from Seattle is, but the Melvins weren't. And I mean, you know, kudos to, to Buzz Osborne for being there all these years and, and, and basically continuing on and keeping his career. However, you know, it, it's, it's just definitely not my thing. No, I, I understand that. For me, it's it's not mine either. I've never really been a doom metal guy or, or you know, that doom sound uh, sludge. But it, it has its appeal. And um, there are some songs, some bands that I can kind of get into more than others. But um, for the most part, I like some of the other stuff more that has a little bit more variety and, you know, not necessarily a more upbeat, but just more dynamic range, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I can get into something sludgy, but it can't be nine songs out of 10 on an album. It's just, it, that that's just a bad mood to me. <laughs> that's fair enough. Uh, so why don't, right. why don't we talk about uh, Soundgarden next? All right. Well, Soundgarden, um, a lot of people are going to know who Soundgarden is and basically, um, they they're one of the biggest bands that come out of this area. Uh, they started or they formed in 1984. Uh, they were together up until 1997. Then they reformed again in 2010, and they were together till 2018 and 2019 uh, as well. The, it, their uh, lead singer, rhythm guitar player, we all know him uh, very well, Chris Cornell. Uh, he was obviously. With the band during their heyday, got back together with them uh, with their reunion and was together with them until he passed away. Um, lead guitarist Kim Thale, and then on bassist they had a few different bassists. Uh, they had Hiro Yamamoto, which was pretty was pretty you know their main guy for a long for a long time from eighty four to eighty nine. Uh, then they had a guy step in for a little bit, Jason Everman. He was there for a year. He also played Nirvana. Uh, and then Ben Shepard was the was the one that was with them during during their heyday, the the big time that after they became successful, he was there with them from 1990 to 97, and he was part of the reunion as well from 2010 to 2019. Uh, drums, a guy named Scott Sunquist from 85 to 86, uh, but everyone else is going to know uh, this next name, Matt Cameron. He was there from 86 to 97 and part of the reunion as well. Um, so Matt Cameron, everyone knows who he is. He's the drummer right now for. Pearl Jam, he was he played drums in Temple of Dog. Uh, he was also in a band called Skinyard. So Soundgarden, you know, their, their their debut album was an album called Ultra Mega OK, came out in 1988. It had a single off of it uh, called Flower. Um, this was one of these albums where, you know, it, it, it didn't do it for them. They thought it was going to be a little bit bigger. They, they thought that it was going to be you know, the, this really big giant step in, in their, their progression, but they were given a producer named Dan, uh, Drew Canulet, I believe is how you say his name. And Chris Cornell was not pleased with them. Uh, SST kind of threw this guy at them and uh, they regretted it. They, they, they didn't like the way that the album came out in, in that regards. And they felt that it, it really killed their momentum. It, it was even more than that. As far as like throwing it out, they said, he'll give you a good deal. So like that, that's <laughs> never a good sign. You know, it, he's, he's, uh, you know, a discount <laughs> producer. <laughs> he's on the clearance rack. 
Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and in 89, they released Louder Than Love. That had a couple singles, uh, Loud Love and Hands All Over, uh, which f- was featured in the film Pacific Heights. So interesting note. I, I actually just watched Pacific Heights two weeks ago, unrelated mm-hmm. to this. Um, a friend of mine recommended it and we watched it as a, a, you know, as a little group of friends and a really cool movie, but it was funny as it was playing, I was like, Oh, there, there's a video for, uh, for, um, Soundgarden in the middle of the movie or actually it's towards <laughs> the end of the movie. But, um, regardless, I just thought it was really funny that, you know, I'm go over, going over this and I'm like, Oh yeah, I just saw this movie from 1989 or you know, 1990 or something. And it has a video that we're talking about in it. So, that's uh i i haven't seen that movie so definitely recommend it okay cool well i'll check it out at some point um at this time hero uh, yamamoto left the band uh, there was some bad communication during the production uh of the album and so that led to chris cornell writing most of the album <clears throat> and at the same time they also wanted to, pr- to kind of avoid you know the 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 slick sound of the 1980s that was was being produced on a lot of records, um, but the album came out. Uh, they they while they liked the album, they felt it may have been a little overproduced. Um, and then last but not least, on their their uh, 90s records, basically um, the one that that put them over you know over the top or got well I want to say put them over top. It got them. Noticed, and that's Bad Motorfinger. Uh, came out in 1991. It is a double platinum album in the United States. It was platinum in New Zealand and Canada, and gold in UK and Australia. It had three uh, relatively big singles for them: Jesus Christ Posed, Outshine, and Rusty Cage. And this was their breakout album. I mean, it, it, it's the album that I discovered Soundgarden on, and this is the album that I saw Soundgarden. Soundgarden opened for. Guns N' Roses on their early Use Your Illusion tours. This is before before they went out there with Metallica in, in the summer of 92. They played Miami. Now, I, I'm, they were on tour, but they played Miami on New Year's Eve, 1990, uh, excuse me, 1991 into 1992, and Soundgarden was the opening act. I was one of the few people out of the 50,000 that were there that actually knew who Soundgarden was. <laughs> oh, wow. So, it was, it, I mean, they were, they were, I I knew, like I said, I knew who they were, so I I was enjoying what they were playing. They they were really freaking good, and Kim Thale is just a monster guitar player. Yeah, um, you said uh, kind of at the top of this record, you said it put them over the top, and I I actually would agree with that because at uh, up to that point, they really weren't doing all that well. Um, their records weren't selling like they expected, especially because. Um, uh, Chris Cornell felt so strongly about the material, but they weren't recording how they felt that the record should sound. So um, when this one came out and they were working with, um, uh, was it Terry Date on this one? Yeah, Terry Date did this album. Yeah, so he kind of said, like, just be you. Don't write what you think that the audience wants, right? You know, cause, cause grunge kind of had a scene and had a sound and, and had like this fan base and he was trying to cater the music towards the fan base. And he really convinced him like, don't do that. Just write 
what you feel the music should be. And it worked. It paid off because he was being himself when he was writing the music. I mean, this, this album became two times platinum in the U.S., and then platinum in Canada and New Zealand, and then gold in UK and Australia. And that's a huge jump from the two albums before who have you know, not reached those heights. So this was the album that really put them over the edge. I, you know, and I, I agree with all that. And the, the funny thing is, it, so yes, you can tell that the songs changed. Mm-hmm. You can tell that there was a, a, a difference in the songwriting because, you know, Rusty Cage is the song that leads off the album. It's a killer song. You know, there's this there's all these different dynamics to it and, and and Kim Thale is doing all sorts of different things on the guitar. You know, um Outshine is a killer song. You know, Jesus Christ pose is is this, there's a little bit of chaoticness throughout that song that's just incredible. But and it and it puts on full display the power of Chris's voice. I mean, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, and then they have, you know, then they have the 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 the, the black the Black Sabbath inspired, you know, Slaves and Bulldozers. That's a really cool tune. You know, just a, a sludgy kind of song. See, so you put one sludgy song on the album, it's okay. Nine, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, but this was a pretty cool album. I liked it at the time, and and this is. One of the albums from 1991, which was a, a huge year for grunge and a huge year for all these Seattle bands and put out some really classic albums. And we're going to touch upon them at some point. But this is one of the one of the first ones that, that really went over the top for them. So uh, another note before we move on to The Screaming Trees. Um, so we mentioned Jason Everman and Nirvana and Matt Cameron and Skin Yard. And that, so you're kind of getting just the, the entry point of some of these bands are going to cross over majorly. Um, you know, we, we talked about it with, with Green River, you know, some of these guys, you know, moving on and, and forming other bands. So it's so interesting and i think i think we should probably go over a little bit of that maybe at the end but i just think it's so interesting that you know because they were in such a small pocket of the industry these guys just overlap so much you know it's kind of like when we talk about you know black sabbath and and deep purple and dio and you know um rainbow a lot of these guys all cross over in the same way you know we were talking about that um, last week, when we were when we were getting ready to start writing the the information for this this episode or these next two episodes, but the difference between all that in in uh, between the English performers and and everyone in Seattle, the Seattle thing happened within like a five year period, mm-hmm. not and, and maybe even a little bit shorter, maybe like a four year period, right? Whereas the stuff in England is just kind of like. It happened throughout all the 70s and into the 80s and stuff like that. It, it didn't happen like, you know, literally like almost overnight with all these bands. Because it's like, all no, right, I don't want to play with you. I don't, I don't want to play with you, but I'll, I'll play with this guy. And, and it's like all of a sudden, hey, why don't you come over here? And, we did, and it's like, no, nah, right, this didn't work out. We're going to literally like, it was like a just musical chairs. of uh, <laughs> Accelerated rate, yeah. You know, yeah, all these bands just like, okay, well, you know we're just going to be like 10 bands and that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and everyone's going to switch, switch spots every two years. <laughs> it's, it's not inaccurate. So, uh, so 
uh, we're going to talk about the Screaming Trees now. Um, formed in 1984 and lasted through 2000. Uh, lead vocalist Mark Lanigan, guitar uh, Gary Lee Connor, rhythm guitar from 1996 to 1998 was Josh Hom. So you might know him from uh, Queens of the Stone Age. Uh, we won't really be talking about them, but there's that interesting connection there. Um, bassist Van Connor and their original drummer Mark Pickerell, and then their later drummer Barrett Martin, who we're, I believe we're going to talk about again later. Um, so in the time from 1985 to 1991, they, they were probably the most consistent with releases. Um, they released Other Worlds EP in 1985, Clairvoyance in 1986, Even If and Especially When in 1987, Invisible Lantern in 1988, Buzz Factory in 1989, Change Has Come EP in 1989, uh, Something About Today EP in 1990, and uh, Uncle Anesthesia in 1991. So a lot of releases in a short amount of time. Um, so I would describe them more as a psychedelic post-punk, you know, kind of sound more than some of the other grunge bands being, um, a little heavier. They, they have a little bit lighter tone at times, but they do still have that kind of sound and attitude, uh, especially when they got to, even if, and especially when that was, that was one of their, um, I wouldn't say like biggest albums, but maybe more made them stand out a bit more. Um, and then there, something about today EP was their major label debut and, uh, uncle anesthesia is kind of where they hit it as big as they would get. Uh, this album was produced by Terry date and Chris Cornell. So you can see that connection to Soundgarden as well. Um, you know, it's some pretty interesting stuff and I found a lot to like, in their catalog, at least to this point. Um, but very different than some of the other bands. And I can see why they're saddled into the grunge scene. Um, but I wouldn't say if you like, you know, I, let's just say Pearl Jam, you might not be as interested in, in Screaming Trees. Um, but there is some similarities there, and there is a lot to find that you could like. They... Screaming Trees was one band that never got onto my radar. Um, I don't have any reason as to say why that happened, but it was just one of these things that I, I never really said, oh, I want to pick them up. I never heard much of them as far as musical mm -hmm. wise, you know, music wise was concerned. I didn't, I didn't hear their, their, I didn't hear a song here. I didn't hear a song there. Um, but then, you know, um, Uncle Anesthesia comes out and, you know, we're not talking about it, but the next album, um, which ended up being uh, Sweet Oblivion, that came out in 1992, which is, I think, their biggest album, um, had their biggest hit on it. That, um, that's where I kind of picked up on them. Um, but again, never really getting into them. But, you know, I, I did understand you know mark lanigan was a huge influence on a lot of the the, the, the folks in the seattle area um barrett martin was also you know a, a big name out there so and obviously we we all know josh Hom, you know Hom, but he came a little bit later so this is one of those bands where it's like man it, maybe if i would have given him a chance back then i it, it would be different for me but it's it's one of those where i never got into him to really 
kind of understand anything about them. I heard the, the the single that they had on the movie singles, um, but I never really uh, got got into them whatsoever. Yeah. Okay, so that's going to bring us to Skin Yard. And so this band, uh, I don't know a lot about them. I hadn't heard much about them, but there's some names that are attached to them that that are kind of important. Um, they were active from 1985 to 1992. Um, their lead vocalist was Ben McMillan. Their guitar player was Jack Andino. That name is going to be pretty pretty big. Uh, in the Seattle scene. Um, Daniel House was in the band from 1985 to 1991, playing bass. And then um, Pat Peterson played bass from 1991 to 1992. Also uh, in the band, um, again, another name we already mentioned, Matt Cameron was on drums from 85 to 86. Then followed by Stephen Weed in 1986, Greg Gilmore uh, later in 86, and then Scott McCollum, 86 to 89. And then... Someone we just mentioned in Screaming Trees, Barry Martin, played with them for a couple years from 1990 to 1992. So Skin Yard released a series of albums in the late 80s uh, into the early 90s, um, starting with the the self-titled Skin Yard in 1987, uh, Hollowed Ground in 1988, Fist-Sized Chunks in 1990, A Thousand Smiling Knuckles in 1991, and Inside the Eye in 1993, which was a, a year after their breakup uh, that that album came out. The The importance for Skin Yard really is the fact that um, Jack Andino was in the band and he became a, a pretty much a major player in the Seattle area as a producer. Um, and so that's, that's where Jack Andino's fame comes from. And so he had a lot to do with a lot of these band sounds. Um, as, as the band's and and the production got better because he wasn't he wasn't the producer when they all sounded like shit early in the, early on and why they became grunge <laughs> but he it was it was once the style became established he was the he was the go-to guy yeah, skin yard's an interesting one um the sound of of ben mcmillan's voice is a little bit different almost lounge singer-esque and it it works really well. I I had never really been that familiar with them. I'd heard the name, but I don't know if I've ever listened to them prior to doing research to this or for this uh, couple episodes. Um, but that was an interesting one for me. I, I especially Hallowed Ground. I found some really interesting stuff there that I liked, and uh, the first album is <laughs> is very different. Like very kind of. Um, <sighs> What's the best way to put it? Um, I don't want to say lounge singer again because that's not necessarily the right way to put it, but uh, has that punk sound, but almost like um, what's the uh, what's the band called? Jeez, um, almost like the Doors. You know, some similarities hmm, okay. there. So I I I will definitely give them more of a listen. Um, I think there's there's a lot to kind of discover in their their small cat, uh, uh, catalog, but um, yeah, I can I can definitely sense that um, there was more to it than just like their music, you know, being that Jack and Dino became, like you said, a major player in the industry. I mean, he, he produced Soundgarden, Mudhoney, Nirvana, Green River, so I mean, he became a major. 
um, early uh, influence on the sound of grunge. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, his biggest claim to fame would be he did Nirvana's first album, Bleach. So that that's one of those things there where, you know, he, he has his fingerprint all over that. You know, between that, you know, like you said, the 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 first Green River album, Dry as Bone, um, Screaming Life from Soundgarden, you know, so he he's he's all over it. And there's some I'm looking at at his discography of all the different bands he's worked with. And there's a couple of bands on here that um, I know of that that really never went anywhere. Babes in Toyland, Seven Year Bitch. Um, uh, he actually helped uh, do the tracking on Malfunctions, uh, Return to Olympus. Um, so it's it's interesting. I mean, he even worked with Bruce Dickinson on Skunk Works. And so that was when Bruce decided he wanted to go alt. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so, you know, Jack is definitely was, was a big player and he's still, you know, doing stuff today. Uh, so that's, that's a good thing. Um, but he, so, you know, that was his big thing was he just became a producer. Um, Skin Yard, you know, they lasted what, what they'd lasted. And, and then um, their, that their influence was, you know, the names that were that basically came in and out of the band, like Barrett and, and Matt Peterson. Uh, Matt Peterson, holy shit. Like Barrett and Matt Cameron. Um, so what do you got next? Uh, so we're going to talk about Mud Honey. So Mud Honey was one of the bands that formed out of the dissolution of Green River. Um, 1988 to present, so they are still around. Uh, lead vocalist is Mark Arm, as we mentioned, from Green River. He also picked up the rhythm guitar for this band. And Steve Turner on lead guitar, also from Green River. Um, on bass from 1988 to 1999 would be uh, Matt Lucan of Melvin's, like we mentioned before. Um, and then uh, bass from 2001 to present uh, was Guy Madison. Uh, on drums is Dan Peters. So one thing I notice about uh, the grunge bands is a lot of times they don't have those massive rosters that a lot of the 80s uh, metal bands have where they have 4,000 members and your grandma was probably a secret member of the band. Um, but, you know, th they're a little bit tighter-knit groups, it seems, for the most part, even though they they shared members and maybe they're they're their career wasn't as long but there is that tight knitness of the of the the bands which i think is interesting um their first release was in 1988 with super fuzz big muff ep uh it's an interesting title um <laughs> then uh boiling beef and rotting teeth ep and 1989 that was an england release only um so if you had it you probably had an import um at least if you're a u.s listener um mud honey was their debut album in 1989 uh it hit the uk indie chart number one and uh had singles this gift and here comes sickness um so that was up to this point um and actually what we're going to talk about with the, the next release probably their biggest release of the of this grouping um and then every good boy deserves fudge in 1991 and now this this album they they basically had an opportunity to go with a larger label but they decided to stay with sub pop which is credited with keeping them in business um 
and they, they were only expecting i think it was around 50,000 they they sold 50,000 copies on the f- initial release so fairly small release considering that they they had the potential to go much bigger um and uh they would move on to reprise for their next release so they they did have that opportunity again and would kind of grow a bit after this but uh you know they they kind of reverted more to a garage punk sound for this release which i i actually kind of like um i i did listen to this album in its entirety while i was doing research on this one um and i did really like it actually more than the mud honey release from 1989 I listened to Super Fuzz Big Muff mm-hmm. uh, today, and it's interesting. It's got some elements that I like about it. Um, I never really got into Mud Honey, um, but listening to what I heard today, um, wasn't it wasn't bad. It's not something I would probably play on a regular basis, but you know, it's not something that I would sit there and say, "Oh, this is horrible. Take this off." You know, uh, I actually enjoyed some of the stuff that I was listening to. Some some killer riffing in there but um you know the rest of the stuff it was one of those things i just another band i couldn't get into um and i you know i don't know if it was i couldn't get into or if it was one of those things that the attitude at the time like even though i was working at the record store and i I had a very open attitude i still had this thing about i there's a certain thing that i liked and if i if it didn't fit that mold i didn't listen to it you know and there was certain things i had to listen to because I was at the store, but when I was on my own time, I didn't listen to that. And very, I don't want to say rarely, but very rarely did the store put something on that was heavy enough for me to sit there and say, oh, that's something new that I want to hear, you know? Um, So it it was one of those things where I I just couldn't wrap myself around the band as much. I mean, I, I wish I probably would have had the, the opportunities and in, in, or taken the opportunities, let me put it that way, to listen to them more because I don't think it, it was it's that bad in, in recording, in, excuse me, as far as uh, the way it's uh, it sounds or the way that it, it's not metal per se, but it's still there are a lot of metal elements, mm-hmm. you know. So it's one of those things. I don't know. It's weird for me. Gotcha. All right, so that brings us to um, one particular band that's got a tremendous amount of influence, and it's it's weird and odd how it does that. Um, but there's this this band was a catalyst for a lot of things, um, and it's unfortunate as to the reasons to why it was a catalyst. But uh, we're talking about Mother Love Bone. Um, they were together for a very short period of time, from 1988 to 1990. Um, they were led by lead singer Andrew Wood, who was uh, from Malfunction. Um, they also had uh, lead and rhythm guitar player Stone Gossard, formerly of Green River. They also had Bruce Fairweather from Green River on lead guitar. And they had bassist Jeff Ament from Green River. On, and then they had um, drummer Regan Hagar from, in 1988 from Malfunction. And then Greg Gilmore from 88 to 1990 from Skinyard. Wow, all these names sound really familiar. Every single one of them. <laughs> exactly. Um, so they originally formed as a cover band called the Lords of the Wasteland, um, but they uh, slowly morphed into what would be Mother Love Bone, and they recorded their first album, Apple, in 1990. 
or was released in 1990. Um, how do I put this? The, it was released after Andrew passed away. Was it, was it not? Am I correct in saying that? So it was released four months after he passed away. However, right. okay. um, he, it was supposed to be released days after he died. So they postponed it because of his passing. Um, but so it was almost exactly four months away from his from his passing but it was supposed to be like three days after right okay so I, I knew there was there was something about that now um they did release um they did release an ep called shine um that came out that had four songs on it um and that was that that's a pretty cool uh, little EP, uh, one big song in there, uh, Chloe Dancer, Crown of Thorns, ended up being on the single soundtrack. And they actually, I don't know if they re-recorded or just um, put it on the Apple album, but they, they separated it. It wasn't the same. It, like they only put on Crown of Thorns and they didn't put on Chloe on there. I don't know why, on Apple. At, at the time that this album came out, um, I mean, really, no one knew who Mother Love Bone was uh, uh, unless you were in the Seattle area. And this album is pretty damn good. Um, it's it's not to me. This doesn't sound like grunge. To me, this is not a grunge album. In my opinion, it is. Um, it is got a tremendous amount of glam leanings, you know, it's very similar to a lot of stuff that's coming out of LA. It's, it's that glam metal. And I hate to, I personally can't stand the term glam metal myself. And it's weird because I know hair metal didn't exist. I mean, I just called everything back then heavy metal, you know, whether you were Metallica or whether you were docking, you were all heavy metal. Um, at least for me. And Mother Love Bone, that that album fits within that mold, um, and that that's a testament to Andrew, Jeff, and Stone, and Bruce because those guys were all metal leaning. Um, but the shame the, the shame of it all is that you know Andrew would die uh, of a heroin overdose and left the band in complete limbo, and that would spark something else that we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, but it, 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 not just what we're going to talk about in a minute, did it spark that, but it sparked something else after that as well. Um, what do you, what do you, what are your thoughts on mother love bone? I mean, it's, it's really a shame that, that they did, you know, end so early, um, because this album is really good. Um, I would say, I mean, I, I tend my view of, of, grunge you say it's it doesn't sound like grunge to me it does um but man it's it's they this band had so much promise and andrew wood was such a good singer that it's it's just it's such a bummer that this is the only release and it it was like you got a feel for stone gossard and and jeff ament at this point i mean green river didn't work out they're now moving over to to mother love bone um we're going to talk about them again in the next band before they finally like settle into an official band right so they you know they they they're mo- just moving from band to band to band and it's not no fault of their own it's just things aren't working out and it's 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 not 
that it's not working out because it's not good music. That's the thing that's crazy to me. You know, Mother Love Bone should have been huge. Should have been. But unfortunately, uh, the cards were not there. It was one of those things where it's like, how could they not have been? But you realize, well, you know, their singer died right before they were even able to release their album. Yeah. Um, and one of the things is Chris Cornell from Soundgarden was really, really good friends. I think they were roommates uh, at one mm-hmm. point uh, with with Andrew Wood. And so um, when Andrew passed, it really, really hit and affected Chris Cornell deeply. Um, so Chris Cornell started writing lyrics and melodies and, and songs, basically. Um, and he approached Stone and Jeff about working on a tribute album, uh, which would lead us to Temple of the Dog. So... Like you said, it was, was a project started by Chris Cornell of Soundgarden. Um, he brought on lead guitarist Mike McCready and rhythm and lead guitarist Stone Gossard, uh, bassist Jeff Ament, and drummer Matt Cameron, who was also in uh, Soundgarden. Um, the band really only lasted from 1990 to 1992, and then they did a reformation in, ni- in 2016 and some various one-offs, but really, realistically, this was just from 1990 to 1992. Um, also, I, I failed to mention there was a code, co-lead vocalist who we're going to talk about again in a bit, uh, Eddie Vedder. Um, so... Again, this was re- or this was formed as a tribute to Andrew Wood, and um, you know, uh, basically a, a an attempt to kind of let out all those emotions of losing somebody that's so close to you. Um, they released Temple of the Dog in 1991, and it became a platinum album in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, there were three singles off the album: Hunger Strike, Say Hello to Heaven, and Pushing Forward Back. Um, the name Temple of the Dog is a reference to the Mother Love Bone song, Man of Golden Words. That's actually a line in the song. And um, they were, they, you know, they were a solid project in that they all had the same idea. They all wanted to, um, you know, work together on this, you know, outpouring of emotion for their friend. But they also realized fairly quickly that, it could really be viewed as exploiting Andrew Wood's death as well as they, they've talked about recording some of his material that he had started writing before he passed. And then they decided against it because it would just, it just looked like exploitation. And so I think they worked through their, their, you know, pain and were allowed to, you know, express that and then move back on to their own projects. But um, I think Temple of the Dog, especially to anybody who's a fan of grunge, this is a a landmark album. Oh, absolutely. So when I said before that um, I didn't, I didn't put this album from Mother Love Bone into um, the grunge category Mm -hmm. is because, you know, listening to it, you know, again, for me, you know, bands like Soundgarden, Nirvana, uh, Temple of the Dog, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, those bands to me, they're part of the grunge scene, but to me, the music never really applied itself in the same way. And that's just my opinion. I know that a lot of people are going to disagree with me, um, but 
it's like you know it's like trying to call Pearl Jam now a grunge band it's, it just doesn't make sense you know they were always way too produced as far as that was concerned they're no they're not produced like that anymore mm-hmm. but um it's just it's just you know like to me Soundgarden would be the closest thing out of all those big bands that came out of it because they were they were slightly sludgy they were slightly heavy uh, they were slightly dirty sounding in that regards even even with their higher end production, um, but you know after after Bad Motorfinger that that went out the window. Um, Temple of the Dog. So when I when I started at the record store in 1990, I started I think it was September or October of 1990. Temple of the Dog was nowhere on my radar. Um, in in the, in the, going into 1991. I, I had heard about Soundgarden. Now, mind you, I, I picked up Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger when it came out later in the year, but I had heard rumblings of this of this band out of Seattle. Um, and I had heard, uh, some people had told me about this band, um, Mother Love Bone, that had their singer pass away. But I didn't know anything about Temple of the Dog. Um, and uh, at this time, we've, there's rumblings of Alice in Chains, uh, uh, you know, in early 1990 and or excuse me late 1990 early 1991 i mean they already um have released uh, had released their first album but so but they're they're getting more and more famous um then then all of a sudden there's this swell this underground swell uh, of pearl jam you hear about this band pearl jam something's coming from pearl jam you know they had, I believe they had released um, "Alive" as a single, so all of a sudden it's like this is, you know, this is going to be huge. This is the next big thing, and then all of a sudden you hear about this Temple of the Dog, and you start paying attention. You start noticing on the album the the the, the writing on the album is the same as the writing on Pearl Jam's Ten, once those albums finally came out. You know, like what's going on here? Like, if you didn't know anything, obviously most people didn't. What's the similarities? Oh, it was the same art director or same artist or whatever. No, it was Jeff Immense handwriting um, that's on the album. And so then you start to do research. You start looking at the songs and you start looking at the albums and you're just like, wait a second, this guy's in this band, but he's in this band too. Like, you don't understand why. You know, you just know that there's an album out or two albums out with with nine, 75% or was it no 80% no 60% of one band and 40% of another there's five guys and and, and you're not even counting Eddie Vedder because he's technically not uh in Temple of the Dog he's just a co-lead singer for one track or two tracks or something like that so Temple of the Dog it's just this groundswell and then all of a sudden the video hits on MTV and it's like, oh, boom, here we go. Pearl Jam is famous. Temple of Dog takes off because te- they released the album. It went nowhere until Pearl Jam hit. Then they then they went back. You know, when Pearl Jam and Soundgarden hit, they said, oh, wait, there's this other album. And they, they gave it a push again. And then Hunger Strike became a big hit with the video. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting timeline with all that that happened in in 1990 1991 
Well, for sure. Especially with the, what we're going to talk about next. So with that all said, we've already referenced these, these, these players. Pearl Jam comes out. Um, they formed in 1990. So they were together. So they formed as Mookie Blaylock, but apparently, you know, you can't take someone's famous name <laughs> and, and become a band with it. They changed the name. I can't form a band <laughs> called Dwayne the Rock Johnson. No. Damn. Well, you could. It'll last a short period of time. But Mookie, and the funny thing is, Mookie, you know, he's a he was a player on the on the Seattle Supersonics uh, basketball team, uh, NBA team. For, for for those of you who don't know, um, uh, Jeff Ament is a huge basketball fan, um, like me. And so, it, nothing <laughs> like you. <laughs> and, um, so he they named the the, the band Mookie Blaylock, but they knew they had to change it, so. They ended up changing it to Pearl Jam. Um, they got drummer Dave Cruzen uh, as a permanent member. Um, and Mike McCready, who was really just kind of doing Stone and Chris a favor by playing on Temple of the Dog, he ended up joining Pearl Jam as a permanent member. Stone Gossard, uh, as I mentioned, Jeff Ament on bass. Um, and then they recorded their first album, 10. Um and then things kind of went sideways with the, with band members. Um, Matt Chamberlain played drums in 1991 for a short period of time. Then uh, in 90, from 91 to 94, Dave, Dave Abruzis um, joined the band. And then from 1994 to 1998, Jack Irons was, in, uh, was sitting in on drums. And then in 1998, until now, uh, Matt Cameron is their drummer. So they released their first album, 10. It doesn't really do anything right off the bat, but it, it's building, it's building and building. It is, it is a huge album in 1991. Ten is enormous. It just was starting. I mean, the the single for Alive took off. Even Flow was a huge single, but what put it over the top was the song Jeremy, uh, and that was all over MTV. I mean, the other ones were all over MTV, but when Jeremy hit, it was just like every five minutes they're playing this freaking song. Um, and I'm a big, I'm a big Pearl Jam fan, but even I have, have slowed down my, my Pearl Jam fandom since the late, the late nineties, I would say. Okay. Um, ever, it's like after, so they release, uh, ten. They released verses. They released. They released Vitology. They released Yield. And all these these uh, uh, up to that point, I was I was good with it. And then after that, it was not so much. They had one or two songs tops that I would like on an album. So I haven't been the same Pearl Jam fan. I I do still have interest in them. I still listen to their older albums. But that's one of those. It's like, you know, we we talked about this the other day. You know. Oh, this band lost me after this album. I don't. I don't listen to them anymore. This is an, a perfect example of how a band can lose you <laughs> after a certain album, and you just don't care as much as you used to. You know that that this is definitely one of those situations. I get that. Um, so, g- circling back around to ten. I mean, ten mm-hmm. was thirteen times platinum in the U.S. Um, and multi-platinum 
platinum or multi-platinum in uh, in eight other countries. I mean, that's huge. Um, you know, you said Dave Cruzen was the the first full-time drummer for Pearl Jam. Um, you know, really great drummer. Listening to that album, because I've never been a fan of, of Pearl Jam, to be honest. But I do fully respect their musical skill. Um, and I really paid attention to the drumming on it because I didn't realize that, you know, he was this was the only album he was on and really phenomenal drummer, but unfortunately like had some, some, you know, addiction problems that he was forced out of the band and not, not because, you know, they wanted to get rid of him, but because they just, they had to keep going. You know, they, they he, he basically, after they completed the recording of the album, he checked himself into rehab. He had to get out of it and they had to keep going because they, they, they would have been derailed otherwise if they couldn't tour or, you know, um, release the album quickly, etc. Like they needed to take advantage of the time and, you know, time moves without you sometimes. So, um, you know, it's kind of interesting that they had Jack Irons from Red Hot Chili Peppers for a while. I, I really was not aware of that, but he recorded multiple albums with them. Um, yeah, he, he was there for good four, almost five, five years. Yes. Um, but yeah, the, the one single you didn't mention was Oceans. Oceans was a, it was a pretty good one too, honestly. It's a good, it's a good song, um, but it wasn't much of a, of a big single. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't a mover, but at the same time, um, I think now in hindsight, you can, you can appreciate it maybe more. Oh, I, I, I appreciate the song and it's a, it is a good song. The single actually had, um, the B-sides on the single were actually what interests me more than anything else. Because um, all these albums, oh, excuse me, all these singles had um, some really cool B-sides. Mm-hmm. And um, that's that's where my interest was drawn to them. Uh, I mean, I went out of my way to get these import singles because they didn't, it was kind of weird. They were in, the, the singles themselves, the B-sides were, that's, that's the one thing I couldn't stand about American record companies is that they release a single like for instance they release Even Flow and they put a CD5 out on it right and they'll put it with a with a B-side from the album mm-hmm. England and everywhere else in the freaking in the world will put out a live on a single and put a different uh, a B-side you haven't heard a song that's uh, leftover somehow you know it's like and I know how it works it just sucks because it's American record companies. When they go in, you know, when these bands go into the recording studio, and they, okay, you've got 10 songs, right? We're going to need, you know, we, we like this song. So they determined that they're going to have at least two singles. We need at least two or three songs from you guys that we can put out as B-sides. So that's how Metallica was doing uh, all those covers, it wasn't just because they, you know, shits and giggles, they wanted to sit there and, and, and record, you know, three, four covers, you know, for the shits of it. No. It was, they were being told by the record company, hey, we, we're going to put these out. Um, we want some stuff. So they didn't want to just give you nothing, you know, something you already had. So in the rest of the world, they give you these other songs. And so you had to get imported CDs in order for you to get, the full collection or the, the, the extra version or whatever yeah. it is that was out there. And I, and yes, I ate it up. I did it on 12 inch vinyl. 
you know, Iron Maiden was big with that. You know, they always had a B-side. The Trooper was not available in the United States. You had to get the, the, the imported 12-inch or imported 7-inch so you can get Cross-Eyed Mary. Okay. Um, but, you know, same thing with Pearl Jam. They, you know, it was just the way it worked. Um, cool songs on the B-sides. So that, that was something that I really thought, you know, put them they because of what they were doing with singles and putting the b-sides out they they elevated themselves in my eyes to bands like metallica and iron maiden and 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 the others that would put a special song on the b-side rather than just any any album track yeah i thought that was cool well i i think for the most part most of their career we're gonna end up talking about on on episode two um but the last one we're gonna wrap things up with today uh, is is one that everybody knows, and that's Nirvana. Um, Nirvana started in 1987, lasted till 1994. Uh, lead vocalist and lead guitarist Kurt Cobain, uh, bass uh, Chris Novoselic, uh, drummer original. Uh, actually, there's several drummers in their history. There's Aaron Burkhardt, which was the original. Uh, Dale Crover, who was with the Melvins for a bit. Dave Foster and Dan Peters. Uh, but Chad Channing was the drummer on the first album. He was with the band from 1988 to 1990. And uh, Dave Grohl, I think most people know from obviously from the Foo Fighters. Um, but his history with, um, you know, uh, Nirvana obviously came first, and he was the uh, drummer on the second and third album. Um, who's that guy? Yeah, who, who's Dave Grohl? <laughs> Actually, if you get the chance, um, and we we don't do paid prom- promotions just as yet, but um, if you watch the Dave Grohl episode of um, oh shoot, what's the show called? Um, Hot Ones, sorry. If you watch the Dave Grohl episode of Hot Ones, it is absolutely entertaining. He is such a genuine guy. Um, Hot Ones is an interview show where uh, they eat hot wings, one after the the other that's hotter as they go. And he the, the host, uh, Sean, asks interview questions. It's absolutely delightful. And he gets so much out of these people because <laughs> they're guards down from eating these hot wings. So it's really good show. Very uh, wholesome. Um, but anyway, back to uh, <laughs> Nirvana. So the other member we mentioned earlier, Jason Everman. And uh, interesting story about him. Uh, so he joined Nirvana. He didn't really quite fit in the band he um, actually is on the cover of Bleach, but he did not play on the album, but he is credited as a, a member of the band. Um, things didn't really work out with Nirvana, and he left and ended up joining Soundgarden not long after. Um, but then he, he really quit music, and he became a soldier, and he is actually... Uh, from what I understand, somewhat decorated soldier, which is kind of a cool story to, to you know, move on and do something, um, you know, very different from music. Um, so in 1989, the band releases Bleach. Um, it's it's uh, Dale Crover on drums for three songs. So we mentioned that it would be Chad Channing, but Dale Crover actually played on three of the songs, including backup vocals for Downer. Um, there were two singles, Love, Buzz, and Blue. Um, and the album would reach platinum in the U.S., U.K., and Australia, as well as gold in Canada, France, and Poland. Um, so this was more of a punk 
esque album. Um, not really kind of in the the vein of what we would know as as the grunge sound per se, um, but the the DNA is definitely there. They released their blue EP in 1989, um, and then Nirvana would eventually like start recording their second album, which would they would call Sheep in 1990. 1990. Wow, in 1990, under Sub Pop, um, but Cobain drained his voice, and they ceased recording at that point. Um, after the tour was over that they were doing for uh, Bleach, um, Chad Channing would leave the band. He was he was not feeling um, the you know the creative juices. He was he was not agreeing with the direction that that Kurt wanted to take the band, so he left. And then they recruited the uh, the drummer of the band Scream, Dave Grohl. They saw him playing and thought you know he just he was the guy you know they so they formed the trio and um they then they resumed recording however um sheep being kind of a play on the the idea of that kurt saw all the fans um would just buy the album because they you know they were following the grunge movement they were following nirvana and it didn't matter what they put on the album they, they you know the record company kind of said maybe come up with another name and they came up with nevermind now nevermind is a massive album 1991 it's the biggest grunge album of all time um u.s and canada and france it is a diamond album um, as well as multi-platinum or platinum in 18 other countries. That is huge. Um, this, again, was the first album with Dave Grohl on drums. Uh, they released the singles Smells Like Teen Spirit, Come As You Are, uh, Lithium, In Bloom, um, all of which are well-known songs. I think most people have heard them on the radio at some point. Um Initially, the record company DGC expected sales of around 250,000 copies. That's what they're expecting. Um, I think they got quite a bit more than that. Um, so, you know, they're only a few years into this band, 1991. They started in 1987. And, you know, this album blowing up to the proportions that it did, issues already begin to develop because Kurt Cobain realizes, you know, he, he had a larger contribution as far as songwriting royalties go. Um, you know, he, he felt like he deserved more. So he brought it to Novoselic and Grohl and he's, and they didn't object initially. They said, you know, yeah, you absolutely. You wrote most of the music. Um, you deserve a bit more of the cut. However, he said he then brought it back to them and said, well, I want it to be retroactive to Nevermind. So I want the, the royalties on the album that's already out. And that's where the, you know, it almost broke up the band at that point. Um, you know, they they really had bad vibes from then on, had issues. Um, and that's kind of come out in interviews and stuff, I think, you know, in hindsight of what's happened, um, you know, with, with Kurt's passing, um, they see it a bit differently now because they've lost a friend, but at the same time back then, I mean, that's, you're, you're coming after their livelihood, right? So that's kind of a rough one. Um, but 
you know, this was such a huge movement, like seeing uh, It Smells Like Teen Spirit on MTV blew so many people's minds, even people that weren't aware of grunge and the 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 scene in general saw that and it, it just it took off from this point. Um, and so the they had such a, a huge you know just explosion of interest in them and Kurt being the kind of person he was who who didn't he was very anti-establishment and didn't like the ad- adulation of the fans you know um, always kind of saw himself as an artist rather than as a, a you know rock star really took uh, you know felt exhaustion and didn't want to do a follow-up tour even though they could have made so much more money etc but it just for him it, it being a lead singer in a band being the face of a band was always kind of an oxymoron like he it, it just went against his nature so much he was Kirk Cobain I mean I don't even want to try to to pretend like I know what kind of person he was. Um, there, there's there's so many people out there that, that have their own interpretation. Um, you can tell that there was something with him that uh, that bothered him. That that'd be probably the better better term. Um, I mean, addiction does that to you. Um, so I think addiction for him was a coping mechanism more than than anything because he he truly was the heart of an artist and didn't really care as much about the fame. However, money will get in the way of a lot of things. Um there's oh yeah, there's a really good documentary um I'm trying to remember the exact name but it was it was done by his daughter Frances Bean. Um uh, something heck. Um, uh, I'll have to look it up in just a second. But um, there, there is a, a a documentary done by her that is is really good. And then there's a book that um, cr- uh, kind of does a chronology of his life. It's a diary, basically, of of Kurt Cobain. That is a really good resource if you want to kind of know more about him and and what fueled him in a way um but right. obviously everybody has their different interpretations like you said i mean courtney love says certain things chris and 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 dave grohl say other things um so there's always going to be that like if you don't know a person directly you're never going to know exactly who they are but i think there's this legend around kurt because of of the the massiveness of this album the massiveness of the band in general that it's always going to stick around people know his name that weren't even alive when he passed away so right and so in in saying what i was saying about that is that for for me um pearl jam wasn't excuse me pearl jam nirvana wasn't didn't have the same kind of effect on me that say Pearl Jam had or Soundgarden or Alice in Chains, you know, they out of all those big Seattle bands, to me, they are my least favorite, I guess, you know, of the big famous ones that I, I like. Okay. 
the the documentary you know, not to cut you off um so it was directed by brett morgan um it was called kurt cobain montage of heck ah okay. yeah that one's pretty good he was he was definitely a a person who you could see was was troubled to some degree whatever you know whatever was eating him up inside you know and this was something that at the time in 1991 what we're talking up to we don't know that we see a guy who is is just you know dressed down he's playing his left-handed guitar and he's he's out there it looks like he's enjoying his music but at the same time you see these kids that are just you know doing what they do on stage you don't know what's going on behind the scenes <clears throat> so we're gonna we're only gonna talk about nirvana up to this point and we won't talk about anything else that happens afterward um but the 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 interesting part was when this album blows up i mean this, this is just out of control blow up you mentioned earlier that um bleach was a platinum album um you know in the u.s and canada and and uh and Australia and all that, or actually Canada was gold. The in the UK it was platinum. The thing is, that album wasn't shit until Nirv- uh, until Nevermind came out. Oh, for sure. That yeah. album, you know, that, that was a sub pop album. Sub pop, you know, fifty thousand copies, and they're 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 more than happy at that point. So yeah, Bleach benefited they, off of Nevermind for sure. Oh, absolutely. So it was one of those things where, like, I don't even think the general public knew about bleach in in, in until after nevermind blew mm-hmm. up um nevermind though i i got to tell you is produced amazingly well um just the 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 songs on there they're so catchy they're so melodic yet in, in a way, they're so heavy and they're so distorted and they're so in your face. It is definitely an absolutely great album. I, I give it that. I would, you know, and I, and for a long time, I did listen to that album a lot. Um, but the one album that kind of did more for me overall ended up being Pearl Jam's 10. Um, but I did listen to Nirvana's, uh, um, Never mind for quite a long time, um. So that's the, the that's one of the things that, that this album is just you know like you mentioned, DGC didn't expect anything more than two hundred fifty thousand copies. Well, <laughs> that, that's amazing. DGC, like the, you know, they hear the album, they like, oh yeah, this is going to be a big seller, two hundred fifty thousand copies, and it just blows the world apart. You know. Well, I mean, you think about it. Um, they got signed to DGC on the strength of Bleach. Yeah. So they're not ex- they're not expecting anything, um, really big. I mean, you you think about. But a good producer hears an album and goes, "This is gonna be massive," and they didn't think that at all. They were just like, <laughs> <laughs> "Well, and 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 I forgot who was it that produced the album. I mean, he's a good producer himself." Um. Who was it? It was uh, produced by Butch Vig. You know, it's one of those things where I, I think when you're in the moment, yeah, you can sit there and say, yeah, this is a pretty good song, right? But you're also looking at it in a, in a very uh, two-dimensional way because you're just listening to the song as a producer and put that way. And when I said producer, I, I more meant the record company. 
Um, oh. I well, kind of misspoke because... there because I would think, you know, if you're a, a record company owner, a good one, you go, oh, my God, this we've got something with this. We better, you know, secure all this. Well, and again, so what, what the, the point I'm trying to make, though, is that on this album, if you listen to Smells Like Teen Spirit just by itself, you don't think about anything else that, that surrounds it. Don't think about the video. Don't think about any, any other songs. It's a great song, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I, I kind of understand why the record company didn't think it was going to be that massive because as good as the song is it there's something about it where is as just the song it for some reason it doesn't give itself that that I'm going to be great what made that song huge was MTV and the video that went along with it and then all of a sudden, you add all that together, then you can see why the song is massive. Yeah, it definitely because the, the video, right? The, the video helped a lot. And so then, when you go backwards and listen to the song, you say, "Wow, this is a cool song!" Right? It, it for some reason it doesn't have the same effect until you've seen the video. And I, I, that's just my opinion. It's, it's a kind of weird thing. It's it's. Uh, the word that keeps coming to mind is linear for some reason, um, and I, I'm just trying to put it as like a flat. It's like it's like a map. It's just flat until you get a, to, a, a topo map, a, to, a topography map, where you start seeing the three dimensions of the of the hills and stuff like that. That's where the video kind of helps give it dimension. Yeah, I get that. that. That's a good way of putting it, honestly. So that's that's I think why the record company didn't think it was going to be huge. So anyhow. The album itself is massive, you know. Um, and you, you mentioned earlier that it's one of the it's the biggest album to come out of the grunge era. It's like neck and neck between that and Pearl Jam's Ten. Those two albums are just equally massive. But Nirvana definitely, I it's it's different. It there's to to me they're kind of like two different impacts, you know. And I think Nirvana probably hit more with a, a, a slightly younger crowd than Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam, I, I, almost like like a two-year difference. And, and, and not to say that they're two years apart because they they came out in the same same year. Mm-hmm. Um, although Nirvana already had a, a, an album under their belt. It, it just It's almost like, you know, in an odd way, Nirvana's never mind appeal to let's say high schoolers specifically you know juniors and 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 seniors, whereas Pearl Jam's Ten kind of appealed more to freshmen in college. It, that's how close it is, and it's just weird because that's how it, they're they're such different albums. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, a hundred percent. It's just it's one of those. I think it's a it's a cultural impact at the time I've, i think 10 is a very good album uh, obviously it sold you know millions and millions of copies um but i think the thing about nirvana uh never mind is that you know that that moment on mtv with the the music video 
and it appealed to people that weren't a fan of that style of music at all. And so I'm not saying one has a more of an impact over the other. It's just a different impact, I, I'm tr- I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right. Like, think about it. Jeremy is what blew up 10, right? Yes. And Jeremy, if you look, if you listen to that song or if you look at the video, it is it, it probably appeals more to an older crowd who is concerned about that kind of gun violence and, and the, sh- the stuff that's going on with the youth at that time. Yeah. Whereas, never mind, smells like teen spirit. That's just like, you know, fuck you to the, to the authorities. And that's appealing to a little bit younger crowd. You know, yes, and that that's the big difference. And you know, that's that's why I was, I was comparing high school and college. You know, and and that's and it 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 is what it is because it's a massive you know album, and we're going to talk more on the next episode about Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and uh, we're going to have our friends Alice and Change join in in on into the conversation and a few um, others, yeah, and a few others. So. Um, that's uh that's gonna wrap up this episode. What else you got to say um before we go into the big four? I mean, I think you covered it. I mean, there's there's some ones we didn't talk about today. So if you if you didn't hear those discussed, um, Allison Chains is a big one we're gonna mention uh, on the next episode. Um, but there's some other bands that might surprise you, I guess. Um, so definitely stay tuned and and check that one out. Uh, but yeah, we're gonna roll into our big four now. All right, well, that brings us to our big four, and today's big four is our big four grunge bands, and um, this one is a little different because um, it, it, it's wide varying in that regards, but, you know, you or I could lean it one way or the other, um, depending on how we feel about the music or the band, and um, I went for did I go first last time? Why don't no, you, you go weren't. first on this one? I'm, I'm okay, interested. I'll go first. Okay, so the big four grunge bands for me, um, number four, I'm going to put it out there, is Temple of the Dog. Um, I really like that album. Um, that it, the Just the whole, the whole idea behind it, the fact that it's a tribute to Andrew and... Um, there's two, there's one song on it that actually, um, Pearl Jam re-recorded or did it, cause you can't call it a cover. They took the same, uh, the same chords, they took the same melody and they turned it into their own song or they kind of changed the melody, but it, it, they took the same rhythm, the same chords, the same patterns and all that. And they turned it into their own song. Um, and so Temple of the Dog has one version and, and Pearl Jam has another. Um, number three for me is Mother Love Bone. Uh, I thought, you know, if, if you're going to put them in the grunge scene, then, you know, that they were pretty good. I and mean, they should have been big. It's unfortunate what happened to them. But that um, leads you to other bigger and better things, I guess you put it that way. Uh, number two for me, um, I'm actually changing what I have on my list here only because um the just the 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 sheer hugeness of it i had one thing on here but i'm going to change it number two for me is pearl jam uh as far as big four grunge bands for me is concerned uh just because the 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 impact for for 10 
um, and how how much I enjoy that album. And then number one for me um, is Alice in Chains. Um, because this is a metal, hard rock podcast, I, I kind of had to throw in some some metal leanings in there. And I think Alice in Chains, out of all these bands, are probably the most metal, even though they do a lot of acoustic stuff. Um, so I will go with Alice in Chains as my number one big four grunge band. So you had Pearl Jam as number one? And swatched, no, I had, oh. I had, I had uh, Soundgarden as number two. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so you just dropped them off the list entirely? I, it, it was really hard. You know, I could have pushed everybody down, but I kind of already started talking about it, and I just changed midway. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. All right. Um, so we actually have some crossover, which I was surprised on. I wasn't surprised on one of them, but I'm surprised on the other. So um, my number four is Stone Temple Pilots. Um, you know, they're not from the Seattle scene, but they definitely were considered a grunge alternative rock band. And they were one that stuck out more to me. I, I always liked Scott Weiland's voice. I really liked him when he was with uh, Velvet Revolver. And that kind of made me go back and listen to Stone Temple Pilots because I, I didn't really listen to him as a kid. Um, but when when I heard Velvet Revolver, that, that kind of brought more attention to me. Um, and I like those first couple albums. Um, the, like Plush is a really good song, Creep. Um, so I go back and occasionally listen to some of those. Um, my number three is your number three, Mother Love Bone. I, I really like that album. Um, it, like I said, it's a shame that he passed away so young. You know, it's 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 really interesting and we'll talk more about it, but you know, most of these lead singers are not around anymore. It's very bizarre. Um, but, um, you know, this was a great album if you haven't heard it. And, and I think probably a lot of people haven't because it, it's one that, you know, why go back and listen to a band that's not producing music anymore is some people's attitude, but, um, this is a really good one. And I'm, I, as I get older, I think I'm more of an album guy than a band guy. Um, so it's one I can definitely consume and enjoy. Um, my number two is Nirvana. Um, you know, it's funny because a lot of people cite Nirvana as like a band that destroyed metal and, and stuff like that. But I, I don't ever view it that way. Um, they have some really heavy riffs. They have some songs that really pushed the envelope when I was a kid. Um, I remember seeing Nevermind and just being so shocked and surprised by that album cover, you know, um, and hearing them on the radio was kind of like a, a luxury at times because around the time that I was, I was growing up and, and, um, you know, they were, they were kind of phasing a lot of that kind of music out on Houston radio. And so, um, I would remember hearing, back on the pop station um uh krbe here in houston they used to play nirvana when i was a kid and then they would phase that out they was more like dance pop music and in sync and stuff like that but there was always this kind of mystique behind nirvana and i remember uh going over to my cousin's house and listening to the music on her cd and just being kind of like enthralled with the sound you know, being a little bit heavier than some of the stuff that, you know, I could easily access on the radio. I was able to, you know, listen, get into metal and listen to that. And, um, 
you know, that was more facilitated through some of these um, hard rock bands that I heard earlier than that even. So um, moving on to my number one, though, it's the same as your number one, Alice in Chains. Um, I think I mentioned when we wrapped up the year last year, and if I didn't, I... You know, now you're hearing it. Um, Alice in Chains was my number one listen to band on uh, my YouTube music uh, account, uh, which really surprised me because I listen to a lot of metal all the time. So it was very strange to me that that was the number one played uh, band. But um, yeah, I mean, I really like those first two albums. I'm a big fan of the stuff that followed, and even we, we just recently did our greatest hits on it. I do like some of the newer stuff as well. Um, but Lane Staley was just an incredible vocalist, and his chemistry with uh, Jerry Cantrell, uh, you know, doing dual vocals on certain songs, their MTV uh, Unplugged, um, just pretty much that whole brief career, just absolutely uh, just fantastic and i'm looking forward to talking to a uh, talking about him next week cool uh i like the list yeah you got two of the same uh bands that i chose um stp you threw that 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 came out of left field for me i i never even considered them they just get to me they just got lumped in there because they came out around the same time you know it was 1992 on their debut album so it's uh it was one of those that just showed up I believe the the other similarity. I think they're from San Diego, which is where Eddie Vedder originally came from. Yeah, and there there's just a similar tone to a lot of the music, and and it's easier to slot them in with grunge than pretty much anything else that was coming out at the time. So again, it's just a categorization, you know. Right. Okay. Well, very cool. I thought uh, I thought that was um, pretty neat. All right. Uh, well, that is our big four uh, grunge bands for tonight. And that concludes this episode of Debating Metal. Remember to click the like or subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform and get Debating Metal delivered right to your notification window just about every week or so. And don't forget to leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com. YouTube viewers, click subscribe and ring the bell to be notified when we post a new episode. So remember to tune in next week for part two of Grunge. Um, Interesting side note, when I titled this while I was working on it, I called it uh, Grunge Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. And uh, I think if you think about it in the context of, of... of uh glam metal you'll understand what that means um regardless on behalf of kenneth and myself stay safe and always turn it up to 11 see ya